All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for family gathered around here, Lord, and for the word that you're going to give to us. So I just ask that you speak through me, Lord, and your word settle on our hearts and settle on our minds and give us a clear direction of which way to go. We give glory and honor to you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was... We spent this week, this past weekend at Gettysburg, and we're walking around the battlefield, and as someone who has been to war and realized that any place could be a battlefield, it just held spe- significance to me as I'm, as I'm walking these grounds, you know, seeing and understanding that, you know, people sacrifice their lives for causes and stuff, and as I'm just, I'm walking, and I'm, there's so many places in these like thousands and thousands of acres that are that each have like specific different parts of the battle over a three day span and and each of them has their own like story to it like this guy was a hero here this guy was a hero over there you know this guy you know and as i'm i'm you know you're hearing the story and you're just like woof but then when you sit there, and on the last day that I was there, I ended up going out at like 7.30 by myself, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, Lord, you always use anywhere I'm going, anything I'm doing for a purpose. What's the purpose here? And so I'm sitting on this battlefield with the mist, you know, just pouring over Pickett's Charge, which is one of, like just an amazing sight and and there's so much peace on the battlefield and I'm going Lord how is there this how am I having this much peace on a battlefield where so many lives ended that was that this field only knew pain and suffering how how can I have so much peace and so it took me a while, and I'm like, okay, I, I realize that you want me to understand the battlefield, the battlefield. And so I said, so I just kind of picked it apart, because he wasn't really specifically giving me any leaning, just that, that word. And so I'm like, okay. So being of military mindset, I said, well, what makes up a battlefield? Right? Like, a battle. If you're looking at Gettysburg, what is a battle? Well... It takes place in a terrain. So you have terrain, and then you have armies. And armies are made up of generals and soldiers. And so I'm like, okay. So I'm going to go with that, Lord. And I'm going to look at this from a spiritual sense. I'm going to look at this battlefield. And he says, understand this, that this battlefield is your life. Life is a battlefield. It has... It's not always in one place. So in Gettysburg, you have like Pickett's Charge and you have the Peach Orchard and you have the Wheat Field and you have Little Round Top and Devil's Den and all these different places where people fought battles. And he says, yours don't, just like your life, you grow and you change and your focuses shift and each battle takes place at a different place and a different time in your life but it's all the same battlefield. 
And so I said, Lord, all right, I'm looking at the terrain. Like, what about terrain is important in a battlefield? Well, in almost any battlefield, holding the high ground is prime real estate. You need it. It, it affords you an opportunity to look over the entire scene, see troop movements, see everything, but then you can also use valleys to screen your troop movements in order to get around, right? So this is a quote from Winston Churchill. Battles are won by slaughter and maneuver. The greater the general, the more he contributes in maneuver and less he demands in slaughter. So I'm going, okay, so terrain is important. So as the one in that morning at 7.30, I looked out from Little Round Top, one of the higher places in the battlefield. And I can see the battlefield. Like I can see Devil's Den. I can see the wheat field. I can see the peach orchard. I can see all the way over there Pickett's Charge. So it affords me the advantage. But... There's trees all around that are obscuring what would be the Confederate army. They could hide behind and maneuver behind. So terrain is important. And so I, like, I looked up biblically and I'm like, Lord, you know, how have you used terrain you know, in battle? And so he, he actually showed me 2 Samuel 18. Second Samuel 18. Second Samuel 18, 8. And this is this is in where Absalom is death and defeated. But it says in verse 8, for the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So, so your face says, what does that mean? It could mean a million different things. I mean, the Lord can use and do anything. So trees could have literally swallowed people up. Like, that's how crazy it could have gotten. Or they could have gotten lost in swamps, in rivers, and drowned. Anything. So they're going into this terrain... And it's God's will that the terrain devour more than the sword. And so in order to have a battle, you have terrain, but you have to have armies. It's not really a battle if there's no confrontation. You know, so in, in our time, in our lives, a lot of it is just spiritual warfare. And, you know, and we have people that come up against us. And so, you know, there's this flesh and the spirit give and take in a battlefield. But each, each army is made up of generals. And so, as I'm asking, and, and so as I'm researching this and doing this, I'm like, Lord, why, why, you know? And he says, people have forgotten 
who I am. And I went, okay, what does that mean? And, and if we think about it, in church we talk about God is king, Jesus is king. We talk about the benevolent God. We talk about the just God, the righteous God. But what we don't talk about or hear very often is God the warrior. God the warrior. And if you understand God the warrior, that's just another reason to fear him. Because if you... If, you know, if you look back through the majority of the Old Testament, God is declaring and fighting battles. He's destroying countries, nations, an entire world. And so if we go and we, it, I'll just highlight a few verses where he talks about who God is. And we'll go to Exodus 15. And it's verse, this is, Exodus 15 is the start of when God just defeated the Egyptian army that was coming after them. He had parted the Red Seas, collapsed it. Fifteen is the song of Moses and the children of Israel after they just saw what God did. and said, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. He is a man of war. You don't become a man of war without understanding battlefield tactics and tactics of movement and people and understanding the hearts of people, not only the hearts of your enemy and how far you can push them in the battle and what it'll take to break them, but you also understand the hearts of your own troops and how far you can take them and how far you can push them and encourage them before they break. That's the key to being a general. And so if you go to Isaiah 42 then. Verse 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He, will stir, he shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. He is a man of war. It says in the word that he is unchangeable. So why have we forgotten that he is a man of war? That he brings war to our enemies and he shall prevail. Psalm 24. Verses 
7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Lord of hosts. You don't become a general and be called a Lord of hosts with only one person in charge. In many, many different places in the word, he is called a Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. He commands armies of angels. He doesn't really need them in heaven. They're here to be sent down to earth to fight our battles, to fight with us, to fight for us. But he is the general. He commands. Soldiers don't tell generals what to do. That doesn't happen. And if it does, it doesn't end well. Generals dictate the battlefield. Generals dictate where troops are placed, where the prime terrain is, where to place heavy guns, where to place infantry. And they use their people the wisest way they can. You know, you don't place cannons in the middle of a field to face oncoming people without things blocking them. They're not great in a flat field when there's mountains all around them. Put them on the mountains and they can see for miles. So to make this perfectly clear, the Lord is our general. The Lord is our general. He dictates in our life where to fight if you're listening to him properly. The enemy general is sin and Satan. They are trying to come against us and destroy us. So the other part here that makes up an army are soldiers. And so understand this, you are a soldier in the army. If you call yourself a Christian, and you are truly a Christian, you are in God's army. Otherwise, you're against us. And so he pointed me to this this verse, and I was like, that's interesting. I haven't really thought of it like this before. Go to Hebrews 10.24. Now we're all pretty familiar with this verse. But it says... So verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And I went, okay, how does this relate Lord to the battlefield? You know, and so, so many times have we said, 
that it, you know, in my life, the don't forsake the assembly is don't skip church. Don't, don't miss church. And it's the assembly is relating to the church building, not the body of Christ. And that's what this verse is saying, is don't skip the body of Christ. Because just like soldiers, it needs to be trained. It needs to be built up. You are weak. If you are in a battle by yourself, only one person, nobody else around you, you are easily captured, you are easily killed, you are overwhelmed, easily, hands down. Even by two people, you are overwhelmed. But if you, so if you are forsaking the assembly, the body of Christ, you are alone and, under, and overwhelmed. But here, the purpose of the assembly, as a manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more. So you are supposed to be training with each other, building each other up, encouraging, fighting with one another, practicing warfare. And if you aren't doing those things, you are unprepared. As an army, you don't go onto the field of battle before your troops are trained. They're useless if they don't know how to use a weapon. If they don't understand that the sword, they need the sharp end to hit somebody with. If they don't understand that, they're unprepared. If they don't know how to load a gun or which end shoots the bullet, they're a useless army. So forsaking the assembly, you are not preparing yourself properly for the warfare and the battlefield that is to come. And you have to understand that you are not to fight your battles alone. As the body of Christ, we are supposed to be fighting together and exhorting one another and building each other up. If you are going through a battlefield, you are not supposed to go it alone. It says it right there, not forsake the assembly. We are supposed to exhort one another, build each other up, and so much more. So if you are going at it alone and not telling anyone the struggles and the battles that you are going through, you're losing and you are wrong. Biblically speaking, you are wrong. I was like, wow, I've never really thought of it that way because we don't operate. The body of Christ, the assembly, doesn't operate like a war machine because in times of peace, what do you really need war for? But peace is just an illusion that can be shattered pretty quickly or disguised very quickly. And if you don't want to look at war, you're not going to see war. In the very beginning of the Civil War, in first, the Battle of First Manassas, when war was declared, the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia met in Virginia 
on the battlefield of Manassas. They had people coming out to the battlefield with picnic baskets and eating and celebrating it because they thought the war would be over so soon. So here are people not expecting a war, not expecting death, coming out and eating picnics on a battlefield where men are fighting and dying. If you don't want to see a war, you won't see a war. You won't understand the implications of that battle. And you get complacent and you don't understand. That's where the church is at right now. We forgot that God is a man of war. And if he's a man of war, then we have to be training as the soldiers that he expects us to be. Now, not every person is going to fight in a battle. Battle armies have reserves that they call in only when they need to. Some aren't even engaged in the battlefield. They may not see any action in that specific battle. But they are supposed to be there in support of those fightings. To bolster any holes. To bolster troops and morale. To reinforce lines of defense that have been set up. But if you're not prepared for war, you're useless. Jeremiah 1.17 Therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Practice in warfare turns you into a bronze wall, a fortified city, an iron pillar. This is the Lord promising these things, that you will stand, that you shall not fall, but, and your enemies shall not prevail against you, because He, the Lord, will deliver you. You are his soldiers, and if you are listening, he will prepare you for what you are going to face. Veterans of battles aren't scared of the next battle in the sense that a person who has never seen death or fighting is. You become used to it. You become hardened to the violence that is around you. But somebody who isn't or hasn't trained for warfare is scared, terrified, and, and has no clue what could happen. But a veteran is used to the ebb and flow of battle. They don't lose heart if they start to lose ground. 
They can gain heart as they push. They can support and bolster those around them. You know, in battle, if you see one person run the other way, it can turn the hearts of others. But if you see somebody charging who you have gone through battle with, you're not going to leave them alone by themselves charging. You're going to get up and go with them and take the ground. So that's what makes up battle, a battlefield. You have to have terrain and you have to have armies. So what does battle look like? And this is where we've gotten it wrong. This is where we as Christians have gotten it wrong. And I was so excited for this. I was like, I have gotten this so wrong. Thank you. Oh, wait. Going back. There's weapons. You need weapons on a battlefield. So what weapons do we have? And the easiest one... Ephesians 6. I tend to go back here a lot. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Armor up. If you go into battle unprepared with armor and weapons, you can't hope to win. If you go into a battlefield with no weapons, you can't win. So here the Lord is dictating, these are the weapons you shall use. Now each weapon has a purpose. We've, I've talked before about the shield, that it's not only just a personal protective piece of equipment, but it is also, in years past, used to guard your friend to your right or your left. So you are supposed to carry your shield, not only for your protection, but for the protection of the person on your right or your left. To guard their weakness, to guard their openings from the fiery darts of the enemy. So if you aren't carrying all of the proper equipment, you can't be a proper piece of the army. If you aren't carrying a shield for yourself and for somebody else, there is an opening that the enemy can exploit and drive right through and cause chaos in the midst of it all. But if you as an army aren't practicing these things together, you're useless. How do I know if I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with you, how do I know where your weakness is, is if, I had, haven't, if you haven't told me? If I haven't spent enough time with you to know your weaknesses, to help you guard against them, how can I properly protect you? You wouldn't want me next to you if you can't trust me in battle. If I'm somebody who lies and backbites and, and calls himself a Christian, but gossips behind somebody's back, why would you want me next to you? in a battle 
when you can't trust me. Soldiers in the line of battle have to have implicit trust in somebody, in that person next to them, that they're not going to fail, that they are going to hold when they need to hold and charge when they need to charge and retreat when they're supposed to retreat, not early. But there's one other thing that we neglect. So we always use faith. We use the sword, which is the word of God. We, always, we are very, very cognizant of those as our weapons. But one of the most underrated weapons is prayer. And here it says in Ephesians 6, 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to the end with all perseverance and supplication for the sins. Praying always. Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 verse 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus and for you. Pray without ceasing. Prayer, prayer, prayer. The prayers of a righteous man are heard. Pray without ceasing. Those are your weapons. You have to understand your weapons. If you don't know how to use your weapons or the proper employment of those weapons, you are an ineffective army. You are an ineffective soldier. If I have somebody next to me who doesn't know how to hold a gun properly and just keeps pointing the muzzle everywhere, I don't want him next to me. I want him to know that the muzzle goes towards the enemy, not towards me. You know? The pointy end of a sword. Don't wave it near me. Point it towards the enemy. Understand your weapons. If you are not versed in the combat of spiritual warfare, and it's not even spiritual, it's physical warfare, you shall prevail against your enemies. If you aren't versed in how to handle the weapons that are given you, you need to correct yourself. And that's why as an assembly, we are supposed to be working together. Some may have the strength of faith. Some may have the strength of will, the strength of whatever it is, the truth. That's why we are not to forsake the assembly. Gather together so that your strengths now become my strengths and your strengths cover my weakness, my strengths cover yours and all around so that we are a whole body, a whole army with no weaknesses.
So that's the makeup of the battlefield. Now, what does battle look like? And like I said before, this is what excited me. So many times I go into a battle and I go, I do tell the, you know, my wife and bring her into the prayer, but I tend to go it alone. And that's where I'm wrong. I think the battle is mine and mine alone. And as I was reading the word and I was looking around, I realized that that's the biggest lie that I've let myself believe. The battle is not mine. The battle is the Lord's. And here's what it looks like. Second Chronicles 20. Verses 14 through 17. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all, of you, all you of Judah... And you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, nor dismayed, because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Jerusalem and Judah. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Exodus 14.14 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. That's your enemy. That's what the battle looks like. First two verses. You don't need to do anything. Trust in the Lord. It is his. The last one is understand that your enemy is not going to sit still. He walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So victory with the Lord being devoured if you're away from that. The battle is supposed to be victorious because it is, of, it is the Lord's. Not my battle, not your battle, the Lord's battle. Take it to the Lord. Use the weapons that you have, faith, trust, truth, prayer. 
take them all to the Lord. Now this is what happens when you don't do that. 1 Kings 22. This is Micaiah warning Ahab. I'm not going to read this because it's the whole chapter, but understand that if you don't seek the Lord and you don't go with the Lord in battle and you don't heed the general's words in battle, failure happens. And it just so happens that the only prophet to say, don't go to battle, you'll die, was right. And in the end, Ahab dies because he didn't listen to the Lord. He believed the 200 false prophets. That's what failure looks like. Failure results in death. Ecclesiastes 9. Verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. That's what you have to look forward to if you go without the Lord into battle. Death and no share of anything under the sun. So that goes for our enemies. That's what they have to look forward to when they go against the Lord. Now so, as I'm in Gettysburg and I'm looking over this battlefield, I'm really in the aftermath of the battle. You know, we're seeing a long, long time from the aftermath. And so the aftermath of a battle is probably just as gruesome as the battle itself. With wounded, with injured, with the bloody, you know, and torn houses and burials and all that. But here we are many years down the road. And we're looking back and all we see are memories. But on that battlefield is peace and he says if you let me fight your battles you won't see the scars on the land anymore you won't see the scars and the destruction on your heart you will see life and you can only experience peace and that's truth because I have had battles with people and wounds have been caused and unforgiveness has happened. But as soon as I gave it to the Lord, I no longer look back on those situations with hurt and pain and anger. It's just peace. It's just peace. And some of us have been struggling with wars of our minds, of ourselves for so long. And we've known this war for so long. 
it's hard to, for us to even envision what peace would look like. What peace would feel like. But it's not your battle. It's not your battle. It's the Lord's battle. So do as He says. Psalm 55. Verse 18. Or I'll start in 16. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Every morning... At evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me. For there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle. To me, that's, I have no issues left in the battle front or scars from the battle. He has redeemed me in peace, in full peace. There may be a memory, but it holds no wounds. It holds no pain. It holds nothing captive over me. And so, in the aftermath of those battles with that I, that I had with the Lord and that I had against the enemy, what comes out of it besides the peace? And it's an increase in my faith. 1 Peter 6 through 8. 1 Peter, excuse me, 1, 6 through 8. Good luck trying to find Peter, 1 Peter 6. <laughs> In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials are to test you. And to purify your faith. Because that's more precious than gold. Romans 5.3 And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. If that's the reward from going through battle, it's a reward worth getting. But so I'm going back to 2 Chronicles. I happened to read even deeper into 2 Chronicles, that verse that I said, which was 2 Chronicles 20, 14 through 17. I went even further and continued to read. And it was interesting because King Jehoshaphat honored the Lord and he followed the Lord's decrees. And so it, it goes through and it portrays and it says, it says that, you know, that he, he came upon the field and the enemies were killing themselves and they were already dead. All they were, all over was dead bodies. But the reward from the battle and his obedience 
was that when Jehoshaphat and his people, this is verse 25, came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoils because there was so much. It's pretty exciting. That the spoils that you reap from the battle when you trust in the Lord are more than you can carry in just one day. The joy overwhelming will be more than you can just than you can fathom. But are you going to fight the, are you going are you going to fight the battle or are you going to let the Lord fight the battle for you? Are you going to let him do it? Are you going to continue to fight that fight that you have been doing for years. Sometimes it feels like even your whole life. Are you going to continue a never-ending fight that hasn't gotten you anywhere because it's only been you? Or are you going to let the Lord take the battle? Let Him dictate the terrain. Let Him dictate the weapons and how to employ you and your prayer and your shield and your sword. Because when you do this, peace is the result. Joy is the result. I mean, he doesn't just like he doesn't just say, "Oh, hey, you defeated your enemy. I'm going to let that be your joy that you defeated the enemy." No, I'm going to lavish you with these riches. And it's not just financial, but it go, it's lasting effects beyond just that moment of victory. It's lasting effects that will echo through time for you. So we have to understand that God is a man of war. Yes, he's just. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, he is merciful and graceful and loving. But he is a man of war. He's proven that and said that probably more times in the Bible. And so I don't think, I don't understand why it took me so long to fight my own battles that I'm not even, wasn't even trained in war for. When my general is sitting there waiting for you to listen to his orders and do what he's told me to do. Because if I move without his orders, because he sees the whole battlefield. As a soldier, I only see this one thing. You only see what, what's right in front of you. Generals are receiving information from all over the battlefield. They see the whole picture. They see the grand scheme. They see the maneuvering of the enemy this way and that way. You can't. All you see is the guy shooting at you right in front of you. 
But if you don't trust the general to say, pull back here, charge here at the time he says, you're missing what could change the tide of the battle. He's not going to let you lose. He promised that your enemies shall not prevail against you. So trust Him in that. Let Him lead the battle. Let Him lead your battle. And understand that you are not supposed to be a peaceful bystander. He doesn't give you weapons. Do not use them. He doesn't say, don't forsake the assembly lightly. You're supposed to gather for the purpose of training and exhorting and so much more. And if you are not doing that in the assembly, then you are wrong. Biblically, you are wrong. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. Trust Him in it. So Lord, we come before you. Thank you for your words and your truth. And we thank you for taking over our battlefield. I relinquish command of my field to you, Lord. I relinquish all battle plans that I have made and that have fallen short. I relinquish them to you. You have the information. You have the knowledge. Take it and bring victory on this battlefield. Bring truth on this battlefield. And bring peace, Lord, everlasting to this battlefield. And let the victory not be mine, Lord, but yours. Let glory be yours. In Jesus' name, amen.